following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number nine of Inferno. Sorry I'm a little late tonight, uh, but glad to be back with you guys again today. Um, and uh, tonight we descend into the circles of malice. We were we ended last time discussing the subdivisions uh, of things and uh, how things are designed along Aristotelian lines. Um, but um, yeah, I, I had a sort of for <laughs> my delay tonight was a combination of uh, some technical stuff and uh, family stuff. So that's kind of like the way. I roll, or rather the way that my wife rolls me sometimes. <laughs> but anyway, here we are. Um, before we start, quick announcement that I wanted to make. Um, we have an, an online moot coming up. It's almost time for Tex Moot. And although this year, sadly, I'm not going to be in Texas and I'm going to miss yet another marvelous barbecue opportunity, um, we are nevertheless uh, doing uh, Tex Moot this year, just like we did Middle Moot. Uh, we are going to do this one where I missed yet another wonderful barbecue opportunity. Um, we are uh, going to do yet another uh, online gathering. Uh, it's been several months now since October since we've done a moot. Uh, so I'm really glad uh, for Tex Moot coming up. It's going to be on the weekend of the third, well, on the day, I should say, of Saturday, September, September, listen to me, February 13th. Uh, you can go to textmoot.org or you can go to signumuniversity.org uh, and find information there on our events page. Uh, the registration link is there. Registration is open. I've been delighted to be watching registrations come in. And although, of course, I'm going to miss our annual uh, Texas gathering, um, I am really looking forward to the opportunity to uh, get to uh, see folks again virtually at least. Of course, we are hoping that sooner rather than later uh, live moots will return but for now we are happy to be able to get together virtually uh, and th there's of course a silver lining and the silver lining is that although we can't get together in Texas it does also mean that everybody can join us whether you are near Texas or not so um, I definitely encourage you uh, to uh, look into that and of course the the, the theme for Texmoot this year is especially relevant to tonight's discussion, and uh, that is embodiment. Uh, the, uh, 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 does everybody need somebody to love? Um, uh, it's about it's about bodies and physical presence, uh, which, as I say, is a an especially apt topic uh, for tonight's uh, discussion, especially uh, Canto thirteen, which uh, we should get to. I'm confident we'll get to Canto thirteen tonight. Um, so, uh, so there we go. <laughs> Julie's wondering which circle of Hades would the habitually late inhabit. Uh, let's see. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I can hope for limbo. That's not, that's not what happens with the folks in limbo. Um, I I'm, I'm afraid it would be like the, uh, I'd have to be with like the non-committal, you know, those outside the gates. <laughs> that's kind of the closest I can think of, but, uh, a theft of others time, maybe. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, well, there's no reason you can't be productive during the time while you're waiting. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I certainly 
certainly hope it's not a betrayal. Uh, that's that. That certainly is what I hope. Certainly no malice intentional on my part. Um, <laughs> but anyway, let's change this uncomfortable topic of conversation. Um, and uh, uh, let's return to the end of the discussion. So we got to um, the different subdivisions, not only the explanation of the different subdivisions lower down, the seventh, eighth, and ninth circles of hell, and the explanation for why um, we're totally leaving, um, you know, the traditional deadly sins behind, uh, and we're like, we've got the violent, and then we have uh, uh, treachery. We have the betrayers uh, down below that, or rather the fraudulent, which are subdivided into the betrayers, those who who, who defraud uh, those who trust them and those who defraud strangers, the fraudulent of strangers in Circle 8 and the fraudulent of uh, th- those who uh, defraud and betray those who trust them uh, down in Circle 9. So uh, uh, so there we are. Um, okay, so we had a final question. And then, of course, after that, you'll remember, there was the, the, the larger subdivision where Virgil addressed the division between those who are down below and those who are up above and sort of addressing without really talking about the heretics who don't exactly f- seem to fit, as we discussed, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, we, we, we talked about the, the, the division, what seems to be the significance of the division uh, marked by the gates of Dece. We were talking about the sort of what any what sort of seems to me I mean it makes a huge deal of that boundary right the boundary that Virgil and Dante have a very difficult time crossing right um, and uh, that is the boundary between the merely you know incontinent up above those who have a hard time controlling their passions and those who um, are malicious right you know you've got you've got uh, you know malice beneath and incontinence above um, and mad bestiality somewhere or other which may or may not be the heretics I don't think so but um, anyway um, yeah Stephen that's see to me it's one of the reasons why I am I remain rather confused about the mad bestiality thing. Um, Stephen asks, is the Minotaur the only example of mad bestiality or are there others? Well, see, that's the thing, is that the Minotaur seems to me to be kind of of a piece. Uh, I mean, uh, well, (laughs) okay, that's an ironic way of putting it. I mean uh, that uh, he's similar to uh, some of the other cases that we see. Um, the Minotaur is the first one that they meet, right? Well, hang on. Let's not get ahead of ourselves because there's one last part of the explanation of stuff uh, that I wanted to talk about. So let's start with that and then we'll continue on down. Okay. Um, he had listed the people who, you know, some examples of like who's in the different portions and things. Uh, and there was one that really, well, not bothered, but confused Dante. He says, go back a little to that point, I said, where you told me that usury offends divine goodness. Unravel now that not. Um, uh, he doesn't say explicitly why are the usurers down. You, you remember where the usurers are? First of all, you remember what usurers are? What is a usurer? What is a usurer? If you're, what do you, what do you, what do you do with yourself? If you're a usurer, yes, you're a, you're, you're a money lender. 
you collect college loans, Jameson says. Yeah, something like that. Um, exactly, exactly. Uh, people who charge interest um, are, uh, are, 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 are usurers. Those who um, make their living by lending money to people at interest and, and collecting interest off of people. And of course, keep in mind that interest on a loan uh, in in the Middle Ages, when there when there was interest involved, you're 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 talking large percentages. Um, uh, you know, a a nice tidy little you know three point two five percent loan was not the way they operated usurers. Um, you're talking more uh, more more. Um, you know the kinds of things that are that are the, the kind of loans that are that are uh, often jokingly associated with the mafia, uh, rather than those associated with modern banks. Um, uh, so yeah, we're talking about like thirty, forty, fifty percent uh, interest is the kind of thing we're talking about here. Um, uh, yes, yes, um, and yes, exactly the kind of loan that leaves someone paying you off forever. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Now, Bruce asks, was this associated with Jews at this point in Italian history? Uh, yeah, we're already we're already there pretty well. I, not exclusively in Italy, I don't think. Um, uh, you'll remember uh, you'll remember it was associated primarily uh, cohorts. It was with like a city in France was where it was primarily associated. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah, there's um, uh, the association between money lending and Jews was already beginning. Um, uh, that, that's because they. It was one of the. Um, it was one of the things that that Jews were restricted to. One of the uh, in the Middle Ages, one of the the occupations to be a money lender uh, was one of the occupations uh, that Jews were restricted to. Um, yes, exactly, Jameson. Usury was. That was sort of the the rationale that usury was a sin, like to to lend money at interest was a sin, um, but it was also understood that it was some that it was sometimes necessary economically. Um, so that's how it ended up being a Jewish thing, uh, because uh, you know it was commanded that Christians shouldn't do this, and so they were like they took a very pragmatic approach and said, well. They're not Christians, so it's okay if they do it. So uh, um, uh, this way it can still be done and yet us not do it. So there you go. Um, and that's one of the ways in which that... Um, uh, yeah, And I know, Devorah, I, I know it is also actually explicitly forbidden in Jewish law. Um, I know. Uh, but the, the Christian authorities didn't care so much about that, basically, is the way that that worked. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jameson, someone needs to drive the economy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. um. But you, do you remember now back to my first question? Where are they? Uh, Virgil mentioned it. We talked about it very briefly last time. Where, where do the if you're a usurer, where do you end up? Where do you end up? Yes, the violent against God. The violent again, you're with the blasphemers if you do that. And that seems to be the crux of what's bothering Dante, right? Um, uh, you t- you, usury offends divine goodness. Now, I don't think the gist of what Dante is saying there is, wait, hang on a second. Usury is a sin? Everybody knew that usury was a sin. Like that, you know, that it was, you know, questionable uh, uh, was definitely... Um, 
known. That was uh, that was that was common knowledge. So again, I don't think he's being like, "Gosh, I never knew." Um, I think the per- when he says offends divine goodness, um, he's. I think he what he is saying is, "What? What? Why there? Why are the usurers? Um, why are the usurers with the blasphemers?" That doesn't make any sense to Dante there. Um, Philosophy, for one who understands, points out, and not in just one place, he said, this is Virgil, of course, how nature follows as she takes her course, the divine intellect and divine art. And if you read your physics carefully, that's Aristotle's physics, not many pages from the start, you'll see that when it can, your art would follow nature just as a pupil imitates his master, so that your art is almost God's grandchild. Um, This was very common doctrine. This, of course, is going to be the subject of very much discussion, uh, especially in the Renaissance. We love talking about the relationship between art and nature. Um, This was a a favorite theme of Spencer's and the Fairy Queen, uh, for instance. But anyway, and and many others as well. Uh, That's just one of the places where I know it best. Um, But uh, anyway... um, uh, you've got God creates nature, right? Nature is the child of God in this in this sense, and human art imitates nature, and so human art is like the grandchild of God. Sure. From these two, art and nature, it is fitting if you recall how Genesis begins for men to make their way to gain their living. Right. That that they should because they have the image of God within them. Right. So in as much as we have that's, I believe, the reference to the beginning of Genesis uh, about how uh, humans are made in the image of God. And so therefore to. uh, Since we are made in the image of God, that we we are therefore designed to be in that in, in our measure to be like God and therefore to make our living through art and nature. Uh, through through our interactions with nature and through the uh, through our art, which imitates nature, um, and also of course the very process of human art, and of course you will you will hear echoes of Tolkien's Mythopoeia here. Um, through our in in our art, we are not only echoing that thing which is God's creation; we are echoing God's creative process ourselves, right? Just as nature is the child of of God, so it is appropriate for art to be the child of humans because we are made in God's image. So it is natural that we too should bring forth uh, fruit in this way, right? And that it should be lineally descended, as it were, uh, from God in that way. So these things, the art, our interactions with nature uh, and our creation of art, or our sub-creation, to use Tolkien's word, uh, of art, this is fitting recalling how Genesis begins, for men to make their way to gain their living. And since the usurer prefers another pathway, he scorns both nature in herself and art her follower. His hope is elsewhere. So in what way is the usurer violent against God? By being violent against the image of God within themselves. Right. They are. But it, when you make your way by lending it interest, you are doing violence to the image of God within your. This is not how God intended people to be. It is a violation of human nature. How? In exactly what way? Um, 
we'll see more. We're going to meet some usurers, so we'll wait to talk about it. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of wrestle with this one a little bit more when we actually meet some usurers. Uh, I don't want to uh, 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 talk about it too much in the abstract before we get there. Um, but that, the, that to, to me, the kind of pivot point there of why it makes sense uh, for usury to be, uh, for usurers rather, to end up uh, among the violent against God, uh, pivots on that Genesis reference about the image of God within people. Okay. All right. So anyway, we'll come back to that. Uh, You know, Dante, Virgil, and Dante both. We'll come back to that. All right. Um, Oh, by the way, what time is it? This is, uh, this is, this kind of, you know, set of lines. This is how uh, this is how Dante glances at his watch, right? <laughs> by the way, <laughs> my watch almost started talking because I held up my wrist and said, "By the way, what time is it?" Um, darn it, I gotta turn that off. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, this is how he answers questions like this. But follow me, for it is time to move. The fishes glitter now on the horizon. All the wane is spread out over Carus. What time is it? Okay, yep, something about Pisces. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've got the Big Dipper, right? The Wayne is the Big Dipper spread out over Kaurus. That one's a little bit obscure. Um, Not to mention not super helpful in describing the time. I mean, like a little bit, but not nearly so. It's the fishes that really tell you what time it is. Um, Kaurus is the northwest wind. So if uh, the Big Dipper's in the northwest part of the sky, it'll give you like a, a, what sector of the night it is, but it doesn't exactly tell you very precisely because, of course, the um, uh, the Big Dipper is circumpolar, so it's very often above the horizon. Um, uh, astronomy lesson. What month is it again? You remember what month it is? Or rather, do you remember what astrological sign the sun is in at the time? That was how it was explained back at the beginning of the book. Aries, William, exactly. Right, it's spring. Um, It's March, right? So the sun is in Aries right now. So if the sun is in Aries and Pisces is glittering on the horizon, how far apart are Pisces and Aries? Astronomy lesson, this kind of thing, not only Dante is very keen on, but we're very good at, we're very good at in the medieval world. Um, the signs of the Zodiac. Can somebody explain, you understand about the signs of the Zodiac, right? The signs of the Zodiac are the 12 uh, constellations that are along the ecliptic, right? So you've got, the ecliptic is the invisible line that is drawn by the sun. So as the, as the seasons change, right? Um, the sun, the relative position of the sun and the stars changes, obviously, right? Um, does everybody, does everybody knows, uh, um, does everybody know how this, how that, how that works? Well, I'll explain because you, you might think you know, um, like you might think it has something to do with the earth going around the sun, which is, which is ridiculous, of course. Here's how it really works, right? Um, the earth obviously doesn't move, right? Everything else goes around. And um, by the way, the medieval model of the universe works quite well 
from an observational standpoint. Um, if you if you take the Earth as what uh, Albert Einstein would have called your laboratory frame of reference, the medieval astronomy system is excellent. Um, they were really good observational astronomers. They didn't have good instruments, uh, so they, they could, there was a lot, in, but like they were really, really good naked eye observational astronomers uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, and their models are very sophisticated uh, in um, uh, both describing uh, and explaining uh, what happens. Um, so they not only, they, they, they knew of course, they could observe quite clearly that although both the sun and the stars appear to go around the world, uh, go to, to go around the earth, they don't go around the earth at the same rate, right? Nor do what are called the wandering stars, right? Those things that which we and they also call the planets. Um, that is, you know, you can see Jupiter, you can see Saturn, you can see Mars, you can see Venus, um, but they too don't always retain the same relationship with the other fixed stars. That's, of course, why the fixed stars are called the fixed stars. They are fixed in relationship with each other, right? So no matter what season it is or what's going on, the stars in the constellation Orion are all in the same relationship with each other, right? That's, that's what it means for them to be the fixed stars. But the wandering stars are called the wandering stars because they, um, they move... And they move very much like the others. I mean, they, you know, they rise in the east and set in the west, but they don't go at the same rate. And of course, the sun is the most important of these because, of course, it's what determines the difference between night and day. So um, we pay particular attention to the way that the sun moves, because, of course, that also not only determines night and day, but it determines the seasons. Of course, it's it's really quite important. So um, so why is it or rather why isn't really the question. The first question is how, right? Observationally, how do the stars, the fixed stars and the sun move in relationship with each other? And what you see is that basically the um, the sun is slowly, uh, it's creeping not to the west, but to the east, right? Like every day, the sun is a little bit further to the east in relationship to the other stars than it was the night before, right? So that's what it means to say that the sun is in, a, that's why, you know, like Aries, right? It's, it's, the sun is in the sign of Aries when the sun is, you know, again, in its relationship with the fixed stars. If you could see the stars in the middle of the day, you would see the constellation Aries right behind where the sun is, right? So as long as the sun is in the zone of the constellation Aries, then the sun is in the sign of Aries. And, you know, when we shift over to Taurus, it's because now the sun in its slow daily eastward progression across the star, the, 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 the sky has now moved from the sign of the ram to the sign of the bull, uh, from one constellation to another. The imaginary line that the sun makes in its eastward retrograde motion um, is called the ecliptic. Okay. All right. Now, um, that's, so that, that's what it means for the, 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 and of course, the, and how many signs of the zodiac are there? Twelve, right? Twelve signs of the zodiac, uh, which means that the day can be evenly divided. Because remember that, that the track of the zodiac marks the track of the sun. 
right? Um, so therefore, the signs of the zodiac correlate most. So if you want to be able to tell time, right, you can tell time based on the time of year, right, in, in which of those constellations is the sun, and which ones are on the horizon at any given time, because the the the, the ring of zodiacal constellations, right, around the ecliptic, is going around. Right, it's constantly going around the Earth, and the Sun is in one place. So you can tell how long it is until this, because you know where the Sun is on that ring, right? But depending on the time of year, right? Which constellations it's in. So if it's in Aries, Pisces, uh, any Pisces in the room? What month in in what month is the uh, is the Sun in Pisces? Got to be some Pisces here who uh, who know when that is. We don't know our signs of the zodiac quite as well as they used to do. Earlier on, yeah, it's the it's the it's the earlier one, like February. It's before Aries, right? Um, so it's 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 the sign before Aries. So it's one twelfth of the zodiac, one twelfth of the ring, right? Before Aries. So if Pisces is right on the horizon, how many hours is it until sunrise? Two, exactly. So if the fishes are glittering on the horizon, you know the sun's going to rise in two hours, right? It's two hours before dawn. There you go. There you go. So like, and since, of course, we're in March, which means that we're close to the um, uh, uh, to the equinox, it's around six, right? It is when the sun rises, so it's four-ish, right? Four-ish. Uh, four-ish a.m., uh, when the Pisces are on the horizon. See how easy that is, right? Now, I'm talking about all this stuff because this this stuff is going to be important. So, by the way, let's go one more step. Since we're talking about this stuff anyway, um, that's that's the kind of stuff that they observe, right? And can easily... So they, they can, you know, so they, they knew the line of the ecliptic. They knew, um, they knew the difference uh, in the geometric angle between the axis. Like, basically... They knew the axis uh, of the Earth was not vertical, um, and uh, they knew that they could. They calculated uh, the angle of the tilt of the Earth. Um, well, what we would call the tilt of the Earth, because it's the it's it's the angle between the ecliptic um, and the uh, the meridian, basically, the line right directly up above. Um, okay, so. One more, but but how do you explain it, right? How do you explain the mo- the the movements of the heavens in this way? So that we we've we we see what the sun does, how it does its marching eastward across the sky, right? Um, how do we explain this? Answer brilliantly is how we explain this, right? Um, <clears throat> what is the natural movement of the sun? What is the natural movement of the sun? If you leave the sun to its own devices, how is it going to go? What does the sun want to do? Now, how do you know what a thing wants? Easy, right? Those of you who remember your Boethius will know this, right? You know what something wants to do by watching what it does, right? How do you know? what a rock wants 
What does a rock want? More than anything else, what does a rock want? What does a rock want? You can always ask it. Exactly, Devorah and Jennifer and David. It want the, I can tell who remembers their Boethius. It wants to go to the ground, right? Just, just, you can tell. Leave it to its own devices. What does it do? Right? It goes down to the ground because that's its home. Everything wants to go home. Everything wants to do. So you can tell what it wants to do by looking at what it does. You leave it to its own devices and what does it do? So if you leave the sun to its own devices, what does it want to do? How does it want to move? You can tell from observing it, right, what it wants to do. Uh, and so this might seem counterintuitive, right? But the sun wants to move. The sun's natural motion is from west to east. The sun comes up in the west and goes down in the east, obviously. Or it would if left to its own devices. But the sun is not left to its own devices, right? Because it's part of a larger system. The larger system, as evidenced by the fixed stars, obviously want to go from, wants to go from east to west, right? So the whole system, the whole, like if you think of the outer, you know, the, 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 the whole, um, you know, the whole cosmos, the heavens surrounding the earth are all in motion, right? They're all rotating. They're all, they're all, they're all revolving. They're all spinning. Um, and they're all spinning at different speeds. Think of the outermost layer, right? The outermost layer is the one that spins from east to west, right? And it, because it's the big one with all the momentum, right? It gets all the other smaller spheres. The inner spheres are the spheres of the wandering planets, all of them, right? From the moon, which is the closest one, uh, all the way up to Saturn, which is the furthest one away. Um, those, they, they, all, they all start moving too, right? So you get the, the fixed stars are pretty far out there, right? They're not the, they're, it's the, that's the furthest visible sphere is the fixed stars. Um, so the sphere of the fixed stars gets moving around west to east, right? And they start, they're rubbing up against all the other spheres and they cause all the other spheres because it's, it's really strong. Right. I mean, the the main current, as it were, not really an apt analogy, the main momentum, a better analogy um, or better description, I guess, uh, of the whole system is going east to west because the big. But the sun itself, it wants to go west to east. Right. So the movement of the sun day by day, right, rising in the east and setting in the west is the sun basically being well to return to my stream analogy, being washed downstream by the movement of the spheres, right? But its natural movement is from west to east. So the sun is, as well as all the other wandering stars, are constantly swimming upstream against the momentum, right? Against the flow of the uh, primary, uh, the, 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 prime, the, the big sphere, right? Going from east to west. That's why the sun progresses slowly, day by day, degree by degree across the, uh, the visual sky, why it changes its, its relationship to the fixed stars, um, because it's not locked to them. The system isn't locked. It's dynamic. It's all in, in, in motion. Um, uh, and, uh, um, anyway, so that's, uh, that's, that's why. So that explains it. That explains both things. 
because you have to be able to understand, but you have to be able to explain both things. Both, why does it rise in the east and set in the west on a daily basis? And why does it move from west to east much more slowly, right, over the course of the whole year until it goes around, all the way around the earth in the opposite direction once per year, right? And the answer is those different uh, impulses. So, Serena, why does the sun want to go to the east? Um, the love of God. <laughs> That's why everything moves, right? Uh, love makes the world go around. Everybody knows that. Um, why is it that, uh, you know, but to ask why God designed the sun, that would be the same thing as like asking why rocks don't fly up instead of down, right? You know, which is the same as saying, why didn't God make the home of rocks up instead of down? Like, why aren't all the rocks, all the mountains up in the, what we now call the sky and all the air down below us? Um, well, that's not where God put them, right? Uh, if he had put them there, then the rocks would certainly fall up, but we can't, uh, that's not how things work. So uh, similarly, um, why did God put this uh, eastward inclination? Well, of course, we don't know why, but we can give lots of allegorical explanations of it because it is really fun to do allegorical explanations of nature as well as doing uh, allegorical explanations of texts because one can receive spiritual edification from all things, both from uh, uh, from the uh, scriptures, as well as from uh, the literature of the pagans, as well as from uh, nature itself. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, so, so there you go. Um, yeah, no, Serena, it's the, 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 the love of God. It doesn't mean that the sun is trying to get back to God. You see, because the sun's home is not where God is. Anymore, I mean, like, well, you could say, like, well, I mean, God created rocks, too, but the rocks don't fly, like, towards God, right? They, they don't go straight to heaven. They go to the home of the rocks. That is to say, they fulfill their natures, the natures that God put in them, okay? Um, and the nature that God, the way that God made rocks, the way that God designed rocks is to be at home in the sphere of earth, which is down, right? And that's why rocks fall. Um, similarly, he designed the sun in such a way that it wants to go to the east. Uh, and so it goes to the east. Why? Because that is the nature that God put in it. Um, there is one thing that wants to be, that wants to go straight to God. There is one thing whose nature impels it to move in a godwardly direction, and that is who what is what is heading in a godward direction? Okay, trick question. Yeah, no, fire isn't heading in a godward direction. I mean, it, it, it is, but not not actually. It's not heading to God. It stops long before it gets there. Where does the fire go? Why does fire go up? Why does fire go up? Where is it headed? To the sphere of fire. Of course, which is up above the air. Of course, I've often thought that if uh, if medieval natural philosophers could have seen like a space shuttle reentry video, they would have felt entirely justified. See, look, it passed through the sphere of fire on the way into the sphere of air, right? You know, they'd be like, Aristotle was right. Anyway, um, so 
Yeah, the sphere of fire is above the sphere of air. And again, you can tell, just as when you drop a rock, it goes to the rock place, the fire is trying to go to the fireplace, which is obviously manifestly above the air because the fire is always leaping up, uh, trying to get up on top of the air, just as the water is always trying to bubble up through, or the uh, air is always trying to bubble up through the water because the sphere of air is above the water, uh, and uh, rocks sink down through the water because the sphere of, you know, so you can tell the natural order of things. You just observe, right? It's called observational science people, right? So, um, okay, so so you can tell where things go. But again, there's one thing that does head in a straight Godward direction because it's its nature. And that is, of course, yes, Jameson and David and Devorah, the human soul. The human soul naturally tends in a directly Godward direction direction. Why? Well, we just read about it. Um, because of that stuff you can read at the beginning of Genesis, as Virgil would say, because God created man in his image. The soul of man, it, it, its origin is God, right? Its nature is a divine nature, and it comes directly from God. Uh, Genesis 1, God made man in his image. In Genesis 2, God breathes the spirit of uh, the breath of life into Adam's nostrils so that the breath that he breathes is the breath of God. And of course, you may remember the connection between the word for breath and the word for soul, right? So the human soul is the one thing that heads straight dire uh, directly in a Godward direction. Um, yeah. Uh, David, so original sin didn't actually alter the basic nature of the soul. No, that is still the trajectory of the soul. What original sin does is it leads uh, the it leads the soul into blind alleys. It still wants to go home, but it can't find its way. Right. So, um, you know, the. I'll have to take this pen as rep. It's kind of like a rock uh, in its essence. It's it's got a rocky essence, uh, a stony essence. This pen has um, what I'm doing right now, David, I think is kind of like an illustration of uh, of original sin and what original sin does. That is right now my hand is preventing this pen from going to its home. It still wants to go there. Right. Uh, should my hand cease the work that it is doing to prevent this pen from pursuing the desire of its stony nature, uh, then it would go home. But it's not home, right? It's continuing to float up here in the air because pressure is being exerted against it in the other direction. So, too, the human soul's natural inclination is to go towards God. But original sin um, ensnares it. Um, it's not exactly like a hand grabbing it. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, more like, I don't know what, maybe a web entangling it or uh, something like that. I don't worry. It's okay. I put the pen down. It's Well, it's still not home. It's on the table, right? Which is almost home. It's kind of like it's home, but it's a false home, right? It's at rest or appears to be at rest. It's at a place that it might think is home, but of course it's not actually at its real home. It's still several feet above its real home. But of course, if this 
pen, if its stony nature were corrupted by original sin, might settle down here and think it had found its true home, just as the human soul can settle down in the pursuit of pleasure or wealth or fame or something like that and believe it has found true blessedness, right? Believe it has gone home when in fact it is not. It's in fact gone down a blind alley. Um, it's still trying to get home, but uh, uh, it is it gets misdirected uh, by original sin. So that is a little, uh, those of you who did, uh, apologies for the review, for those of you who did the Boethius class with us, but a lot of these principles, which are ultimately Aristotelian principles, um, uh, are the, um, is, is these are really important bases. And and some of the, you're going to need to know this. I mean, even with the usurers, we saw this, right? I mean, we saw him pointing towards exactly this. If you're going to have any kind of um, visceral understanding um, of how it is that this, and someone, Serena, I think it might have been you, was talking about the kind of mental gymnastics that are required to understand the system, like how you can talk yourself into the idea that a usurer is... Um, violent against God uh, in, you know, what they do by, by you know, uh, taking interest. I'm not saying that there are not places where that is kind of true, uh, where they do, where they are, uh, where you can see people in the Middle Ages kind of talking themselves around an issue in what seems like a kind of painfully elaborate way. Um, that, it's not that that doesn't happen, because it absolutely does. But I would say that that it's that it feels much more like that to us because we don't share their understanding for the basic ways in which the world we don't live in an aristotelian world anymore um most people don't even under don't even know these principles much less really believing in them we have replaced those aristotelian principles with different principles that is we have a, a different way of describing it. We, we also are observational scientists um, and it's not that we're observing different things. It's not even in some ways that we're drawing totally different conclusions about them. In a lot of ways, we're just talking about them. They they knew perfectly well about gravity, right? They knew about things falling, right? When you let them go. And they w- mapped it exactly the same way. They knew the properties. Uh, they, they, they knew the, the, the actions of bodies in motion. Um, they also had observed this. The, the biggest difference is not like they didn't know about gravity. Of course they knew about gravity, right? They knew about falling down. They knew that things fell. They described it differently. They had a fundamentally different understanding of sort of framework for those observations. So they made observations like we, you know, of course we have other, uh, we have other mechanisms for making observations. We've got better instruments than they do. Um, but, um, uh, but we, we, we are interpreting those things within a very different, uh, framework. And so therefore in large part, it's, I'm, and this isn't the only framework. I mean, the thing that I'm talking about, about where stones want to go and how the, 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 the um, spheres of the of the heavens move um, is not this that doesn't like explain everything but it's one example of this kind of thing so um, I explain these things trusting that this will be useful should we ever move on to, to talking about the purgatorio or the paradiso at some point in the future um, we'll, we'll come back to the spheres because that's going to be important um, as of course in paradiso Dante will actually begin to ascend and travel through uh, one sphere after another as he ascends up through the heavens. Uh, so 
you know, things are going to get um, uh, much more astronomical uh, when we get into Paradiso in that way. So it's important that you guys know how the spheres go around for future reference. Um, but I, but I wanted to talk about this here, too, because, again, it's it's going to be. Um, if you are thinking. All right, just pausing before I say this to make sure that this is a fair thing to say, but I think it is. You might be tempted to respond to the way that Dante describes things as if you are describe as if you are responding to a, a sort of arbitrary assignment of things, right? Um, as if what Dante is cataloging is a set of decrees on the part of the church, right? The church has said these things are wrong, and so those things are being punished in hell, and Dante's transmitting that. You know, he's transmitting what his culture says about that. Um, I'm not saying Dante's not transmitting what his culture says about these things, but what I am saying is that if that's your understanding of the of what of what we're reading as we go through, um that's okay, but you are going to have a fundamentally different experience than anything any medieval reader would have. And certainly than Dante himself, uh, very far outside the framework that Dante himself was working within, which is fine as long as you're aware of that, right? You just need to be conscious of the fact that you're having a very different experience and you're thinking about things and talking and talking about things very, very differently. Um, the way that they would... And, so, and again, here I come back to the difference between, you know, this is in partly what I'm doing here as we come to the end of Canto 11 here is a kind of a commentary, a long and rambling commentary, admittedly, on the Aristotelian nature of hell, right? Um, if what Dante were doing were merely transmitting the decrees of the church, right? The church has said that these sins are wrong, right? There's like a, the, these these actions are forbidden by the church. And if you commit them, you'll be punished. And I'm going to show you how people are being punished for the th when they've done the bad things that the church says you shouldn't do, right? Um, if Dante were doing, if that's what Dante were doing, if that's how his hell were organized, then what would we see? Well, we'd see the seven deadly sins for crying out loud, right? We'd see kind of what we, I, you know, I always expected to see when we, when I, when I read Inferno, um, uh, for the first time. And that's not what we see. Instead, what we see is an Aristotelian division. And the point there is Aristotle, Aristotle figured this stuff out. And how did he figure this stuff out? How did Aristotle know? How could Aristotle possibly have known how hell was organized? Answer, he didn't know how hell was organized. What did he know? He knew how the world worked. And how did he know that? By observing it, right? He was he, that's just, he's not the philosopher for nothing, right? He observed carefully how things work, not just how the world works. That's why you had Virgil referring to the physics. And, 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 and you know, I didn't even talk about that element. But if you'll remember in his explanation, when Dante says, essentially, why are the usurers in the circle of the violent against God? Aristotle, or sorry, not Aristotle, uh, Virgil's response is, haven't you read Aristotle? In the physics, he says, like, wait, wait, what? You're going to Aristotle's physics 
to explain why usurers are in the circle of uh, of of the violent against God? Yes, he is. Right. Okay. So notice he's not appealing to Aristotle as an authority on like what is or is not you know appropriate behavior right or again what is or what are what what is or is not against the laws of the church what could possibly be less relevant to aristotle right what is he an expert on he is an expert on how the world works now of course, he wrote more than just the physics he also wrote the ethics and, and other so cuz it's cuz he's the philosopher right so he didn't only observe how the world worked he also observed how people worked as well um but um so this is why. This is how Aristotle essentially, like, he didn't say it. Aristotle didn't say it this way, right? It's not, you know, Aristotle doesn't write a treatise on how hell is organized. But that's why when Dante shows us hell, it turns out to be organized on Aristotelian principles. Why? Because Aristotle was right. Because Aristotle observed how the word world works. He, he, he made these observations and he drew uh, compelling logical conclusions from that that's why he's the philosopher. Um, so all these things, uh, exactly as Bruce says, it's all in Aristotle. What do they teach them in these schools? Um, yes, exactly. Um, Bruce says, how much of Aristotle did the medieval Italians have? I don't know precisely the answer to that, Bruce, but most, most, um, not, not, not right away. Um, the medieval Italians of the 13th century have it, but it's new. It is a hot, sexy new thing, Aristotle. Um, we lost Aristotle and most of Plato. Um, we kept Plato for a lot of the time because we happen to have some Latin translations of the, uh, uh, especially the Timaeus and some other bits of Plato. That's why the Timaeus is the most important of all of Plato's dialogues from a medieval perspective, because we had it for the longest because we had a Latin translation of that one. Remember, we don't have Greek. We, we've forgotten Greek uh, in the European Middle Ages for a long, long time. So it's not until uh, we get Muslims who come in and start translating from the, they, they have Aristotle. Right. And so the first Latin translations of Aristotle hit the anachronistic presses, as it were, uh, in the in the 1200s. So we're talking less than 100 years before Dante's writing the Divine Comedy. Aristotle bursts upon the scene. Albertus Magnus, the great teacher, um, uh, was uh, was the like the the one of the number one? He was like the Western Christian dude who primarily popularized Aristotle. He was like he 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 received a copy of Aristotle and was like this this is the bomb and like popularized Aristotle and it was it became a huge rage. Um, so it's been around now for decades, you know, uh, by the time it comes to Dante, but it's, but it's, it's still relatively recent, but again, uh, but Bruce, they, they have a lot of it. I mean, as you've already seen references, he's quoted the physics, he's quoted the ethics. He, uh, he knows quite a bit, uh, of, um, uh, of, of, of Aristotle. Um, yeah, yeah, yes, and Albertus Magnus is famous for alchemy too. Yeah, I'm not saying he's a totally unsketchy uh, figure in medieval church history, but he is very much at the like forefront of the Aristotelian movement uh, in the 14th century. So, um, uh, so, so Bruce, they. They don't know Aristotle secondhand in this. Oh, did they know him secondhand before that? Like they knew Homer secondhand. <laughs> it's possible. I don't think that they would have had the same, like before they got Aristotle in the 13th century, they didn't talk about him like they talked about. 
I don't remember them talking about him like they talk about Homer. And the difference is, like, the poets that they do have revere Homer, especially Virgil, right? I mean, you can't read Virgil and not come away with, like, any kind of respect for Homer, right? Like, you know that Homer is lurking in the background. So, like, in any Latin works, but especially in Virgil, you know, Homer, one is aware that Homer is this, like, gigantic brooding presence behind it. If you don't really know anything about Homer and you've never read anything of Homer, you have this, like, a particular relationship with Homer, right? Um, Whereas there aren't as many references to Er Like, certainly... um, and this may shock you to hear, there are not very many references to Aristotle in Plato, right? Because he came before Aristotle. So, um, uh, so anyway, like the, there were others who would have alluded to him, but again, it's but it, but but it's, it doesn't have the same, like he didn't have the mythic status. Homer had a mythic status all on his own, right? Um, even without reading anything he ever wrote, he had a mythic status from within uh, the Latin corpus. Uh, so. Um, uh, anyway, so that's um, um, that's so so it's 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 certainly not the same. It's certainly not the same, but um, their knowledge of Homer was always more indirect because they didn't even have. Well, they had a kind of translation of Homer, but it was a really crappy translation of Homer. It's more like um, trying to think if this is fair. Well, it's a really sloppy parallel. Um, it's less like reading Homer in translation and more like reading the Cliff's Notes version of Homer, basically. Um, it was a prose synopsis, basically, of Homer is what they have. So they knew the plot details. Some of them. Remember the business about uh, Achilles dying because of his sexual passion? Not a great synopsis, but still, they, 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 knew, they had some basic knowledge of the events that Homer described. They had more knowledge from the allusions to Homer in the Latin poets. That was a much more reliable uh, view of what was there. Um, right? Stephen says they had the Wikipedia article for Homer. That's maybe closer, actually, than Cliff's Notes. Um, uh, yes. Uh, whereas... So Aristotle just kind of bursts on the scene. Um, But anyway, Aristotle has well and truly burst by the time uh, of Dante. And again, Aristotle, he he, he figured it out. And what did he figure out? The truth. He figured out how things work. Now, he doesn't have the whole context, right? You know, he 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 didn't have revelation. But of course, Plato... And Aristotle, they, they were right about most of the things that they say. You know, this, again, this is why, you know, some people will be like, well, you know, the, the, you know, there's a lot of similarities between, you know, a lot of medieval theology and like Platonism, for instance. Well, of course, because they agreed with Plato. Right? They thought he was right about a great many things. Uh, and Aristotle as well. Um, uh, it's not like they were cribbing off of that. They, they were agreeing. They were, not, they were not copying. They were agreeing. Um, anyway, so Aristotle has figured this <laughs> Sorry, I was just seeing Colette saying uh, they didn't have Homer. They had the wishbone episodes about Homer uh, for all of you 1990s kids out there. Uh, no, no, Colette, I, no. It would be an insult to the wishbone episodes to compare uh, the... Um, the, the medieval Latin version of Homer, uh, the wishbone episodes, if they had had the wishbone episodes of Homer, they would have a far more accurate appreciation uh, for Homer than they than they actually did. Um, <laughs> but I like the parallel. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. Um, so, all right. Um, coming back around to uh, Aristotle. Okay. So, my appeal here is just that you remember Dante is not asserting doctrine. And again, not from his point of view. He is describing reality. And Aristotle, Aristotle nailed it, right? Aristotle's observational science um, and his explanations of what these things mean. Again, the, 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 the stuff that I was describing, the movement of the sphere, the, of the spheres, the geocentric, um, the geocentric description, it's, 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 it's all in Aristotle. It's all in Aristotle. Um, uh, he figured all this stuff out. The Greeks, by the way, also excellent uh, uh, naked eye observational astronomers. Um, uh, Dante actually will go on in some of the works later on, again, especially in Purgatory and Paradiso, actually to describe some astronomical experiments that you can do yourself at home. Well, that you could do yourself at home, do yourself at home in the absence of light pollution, which of course is a very big difference between the middle, the medieval world and the modern world. Um, sadly, there are very few places in the modern world where it is possible to see Pisces glittering on the horizon. Um, because Pisces is quite a faint constellation. And if it's down on the horizon, you're never going to see it in the modern world. Um, you'd have to go to, I don't even know where you'd have to go, the Yukon. Um, you'd have to go somewhere very far indeed from civilization, uh, you know, from, from you know, any modern uh, lights uh, to be able to see Pisces on the horizon anymore. Um, uh yeah, yeah. Anyway, th there are some places. There are some places you could go to, but it's uh, it's pretty far. I mean, um, it's 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 pretty wild. It reminds me, even uh, just you know, when um, my brother-in-law and his family uh, visited us up here in New Hampshire. They live in Washington D.C. and uh, they came up to visit us. And his daughters were like, at night, they were like, "Whoa." I mean, you can see the Milky Way from my house regularly if it's clear. Uh, and uh, they would, they'd they never seen the stars before. <laughs> Not really. You know, they'd never seen more than one or two really bright stars up in the sky because they've lived in the city all their lives. Uh, and uh, and they still, for years, they still, you know, call that they, they uh, you know, I, I remember one of them uh, saying at one point adorably uh, that, you know, the stars lived at our house uh, because it was the only place they'd ever seen the stars. Um, anyway, but even here, uh, well, of course, like, I couldn't see Pisces on the horizon because I can't see the horizon because I'm in a I'm, I'm in the woods. But um, uh, but even if I were up in a high place, I wouldn't be able to see Pisces from here. I'm, st I'm still too close, to, still still too close to cities, even if I can see the sky straight above. Um, anyway, okay. So I hope that this I know this is a long digression, uh, but again, I, I think that it's important. I think it's important for you guys to uh, part of the the point is not necessarily for you to absorb these particular details about the medieval, you know, about medieval cosmology. The point is for you to begin to. If you can remember that the assumptions you make about the world are peculiar are different from the medieval ones. Um, and that if something, if, if one of the things that Dante is saying, uh, does not seem to make any sense to you, tr just try to remember that, right? Try to and try to see if you can piece it into the kind of worldview that I was describing this place where 
everything is created. Everything is created with a purpose. Everything is created with its own intrinsic nature and a home. And it is therefore an intrinsic violation. The sun, the sun is not going to make its own way in the world, right? The sun, true happiness for the sun is to go its own way, the way that it wants to go, right? It is, the sun goes around the world um, because it's happy, right? It is fulfilling its nature. When a rock falls to the ground, it's happy, right? Um, we, it is a modern idea, and I would say in particular a modern American idea. Uh, I'm not saying we're unique in this, but we hold it to be particularly dear, uh, says he who lives in the live free or die state, um, that the freedom to determine your own destiny is true happiness. And if there is any kind of external constraint that is placed upon you, that is compelling you in a particular way, and uh, you know that that you did not choose, um, that that is a restriction of your freedom and therefore of your happiness. This is a very fundamental part of the modern worldview for very many, I'm not saying for everybody, but for very many people, that's a basic assumption. And that anything which sounds like constraint, right? Anything which sounds like compulsion, like your nature compels you to act in this way and you must follow it, um, sounds like slavery rather than happiness. Not in the medieval worldview. Everything wants, it's like, it's like releasing water under, or releasing air underwater. Right. And it fall, you know, fly, you know, uh, rising up and then bursting out and joining the rest of the air. Right. Again, that's what happiness looks like. That's not um, that's not that's not slavery. Um, so. In order to try to understand sin from an, within an Aristotelian and not simply a doctrinal standpoint, you have to try to wrap your mind around this. Right. Um, that someone who has made the, the choices that a per, when someone is making sinful choices, right, when someone is uh, is sort of charting their path ultimately in a, in a direction away from God. Right. It is like, you know, when you turn a bowl upside down and push it down under the water. Right. And, you know, like especially if it's a largest bowl and the water gets deeper, the deeper you push it and the, the longer you try to hold it, the harder it is to do, right? The more force it exerts against you, the more violence you are doing, pushing it further and further away from where it wants to be, right? It's, it's, it's going to push back. It's, it's very nature is going to push back against you. It's hard to constrain it. That is what sinners are doing to their souls, right? That is, that's, that's the framework. That's the significance of the Aristotelian framework of hell. Um, so um, that's, uh, I, guess I, say, I, say, I hope this helps uh, to try to contextualize some of the things um, because we're going to be talking about a lot of things as being natural or unnatural. Remember, Virgil already set the, just in the previous slide, Virgil set the, the, like, the tone for that, right? And so I feel like I had to contextualize that. Um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Jameson, I agree. There are ways in which you can like make the modern perspective jive with the modern one in some way. You know, Jameson is saying, uh, in a modern frame, you must be true to yourself, right? 
Yeah, see, and, and I think actually a modern person and a medieval person might have said exactly the same thing, right? You've got to be true to yourself. Um, you've got to be true to your nature. It's just like what that means is sort of like the understanding of what the nature is. Um, and again, it's so fundamental and increasingly so. I mean, if you look at the way in which our culture has been changing over the last 20, 30 years, even, um, one of the one of the one of the vectors, not vectors, that's perhaps the wrong metaphor. Um, one of the trajectories of that change is towards an increasing idea of a, 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 an increasingly fundamental concept of self-determination. Right. Um, that, you know, the, the, the fundamentally being true to yourself is like deciding your own nature. Right. And and like, you know, deciding to be, you know, like being who you are. It's it's. As I, said, I actually think that there are ways to context to, to fit that actually with the medieval worldview. But what is the primary difference is that the medievals were operating within like the uh, there there was the narrative right there's the story. It's described by Aristotle. It's talked about by many others, uh, and they um, uh, they. Finding yourself, right, doesn't mean making decisions about who you want to be. It means allowing yourself, uh, like, you know, a broken bone slipping back into place, like that air that's trapped in your bowl underwater finally being released and permitted to do its thing. That's what finding yourself looks like, uh, returning home, uh, doing your thing. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and, and ultimately, uh, Jameson, of course, when you're talking about the human soul and therefore talking about moral choices, you're talking about a Godward direction and following the nature, the, the nature that God put in you. Um, all right. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Uh, so, Let's keep going. My plans to get to Canto 13 are looking worse and worse. Here I I've been in the in the in the the the, the forest here from Canto 13, and I'm no longer sure we're gonna get. I was not planning that that digression tonight, but I think it was worthwhile. Okay, um, we're descending. We're having now. And and by the way, remember what they were doing. What were why did Virgil and Dante originally stop and have this long this canto long discussion about Aristotle? No, you know it wasn't just about Aristotle explicitly, but about the you know the structure of hell. Do, do you remember why? Why did they stop? The smell, Devora, absolutely the smell. They had to acclimate themselves to the smell. They had to adjust to this because eventually they could get to the point to the point where they could tolerate it. Do you see the significance there? Right. Their reaction to approaching the lower three circles of hell, the miasma of stench emerging from circles seven through nine of hell is, again, it's, it's not even a symbol of it. It's, it's more direct than that. It's like a manifestation of the wrongness, right? They have to adapt Right. You know, their own like they, they've got to acclimate their natures to the wrongness right of down there and get to a place where they can stand it so that they can even really bring themselves to encounter it. And as you can see, that's connected. Um, that's connected to the this that this whole 
question of the the nature of things and how things are are, are designed to go. That smell is like it's what uh, you know if. Um, if the force that that bowl full of air is exerting on your hand, you know, could be manifest in some other way, it would be like a bad smell, right? Like it's this is this is wrong. This is not the the, the air is telling you this is not my home. This is not where I want to be, right? The smell is, uh, in, at least that's you know one of the ways in which I understand it uh, to be um, um, uh, to be a, a sensory um, manifestation of this same kind of. Uh, same kind of of wrongness um yeah dave that's a good way of saying it the evidence it's the the smell is the evidence of the corruption of the souls uh, in the same way that the smell of rot is the evidence of the corruption of the flesh yeah that's great david i really like that 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 that, that works very well okay anyway but off we just let's, let's at least get into let's get into canto 12 if we don't get to canto 13 and at the edge above the cracked abyss there lay outstretched the infamy of crete Conceived within the counterfeited cow. Uh, so, Stephen, here we go. Uh, we're, we're, we're starting with the Minotaur here. And catching sight of us, he bit himself like one whom fury devastates within. Turning to him, my sage cried out, Perhaps you think this is the Duke of Athens here, who in the world above brought you your death. Who, who are we talking about? Pop quiz. Theseus, yes, very good. Duke of Athens. Duke vaguely leader of of Athens, Theseus, right? Theseus who slew the Minotaur. Um, And why would he think that this was Theseus? Pop quiz number two, or rather second question on the Theseus quiz. Uh, Why is it that the, that the, that the, not Centaur, we're we're not quite there yet, Uh, that the Minotaur would think that this was Theseus? Because Theseus is one of two Greek heroes who descended alive into the underworld. Uh, of course, you know, Hercules gets all the press uh, for his, de- and not least because his descent into the underworld was rather more successful uh, than Theseus's. is. Uh, but Theseus descends into the underworld bodily as well in order to rescue his friend, but he gets stuck physically stuck. He sits down on a bench and can't get up again. Uh, He's frozen to the bench until uh, Heracles or Hercules gets down there and pulls him up off the bench, rips him off the bench, um, which in some versions of the myth, uh, we are told, explains why Athenians have slender thighs, uh, (laughs) which I always uh, thought was TMI. But anyway... um, uh, and, and yeah, you know, the, Orpheus too. Orpheus is uh, is is big with the descent to the underworld too. I got my point is it's not just Hercules, but anyway, Theseus was one. Theseus goes down to try to rescue uh, Pyrithous, his friend, uh, and uh, gets stuck, but he, he does end up getting rescued uh, by Heracles. So uh, Theseus <clears throat> is um, a famous for so. This is Virgil saying, yeah, yeah, there's a living guy coming through. But, uh, but uh, 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 you know, uh, chill out there, Mr. Minotaur. It's not the dude who killed you. Um, it's not Theseus. Okay. Be off, you beast. This man who comes has not been tutored by your sister. All he wants in coming here is to observe your torments. Just as the bull that breaks loose from its halter the moment it receives the fatal stroke and cannot run but plunges back and forth, so did I see the Minotaur respond, and my alert guide cried, Run toward the pass. It's better to descend while he's berserk. 
Okay, so we're comparing the Minotaur to a sacrificial bull. Um, okay, yeah. Um, now, David, I don't know the answer to your question. I wonder the same thing. Uh, David's very sharp question here is, okay, so we've seen a bunch of other mythological figures, right, who seem to be real in some sense, or rather we're, uh, to say the same thing a different way, we are seeing, we are encountering here or perceiving here the reality that underlies the mythological story, right? So we, we saw this with Cerberus, of course, uh, was the, the, the kind of the primary or the first example that we keep coming back to. Um, but of course, as we were seeing, and we saw this with uh, What's-His-Face, uh, the, um, the uh, Plutus, right, as well, um, they were demons, Right, they're demons, so they're actually demons. Uh, so again, like you know, three-headed dog. Yeah, you, you know, yes and no. Right, yes and no. Um, it's an understandable mythic version of this, but actually, the real Cerberus is a demon who is tormenting uh, the gluttonous up there in the third circle. So David's question, which, as I say, is an excellent question. So this is a demon like Cerberus was a demon. Is is this the same? Um, we're seeing here the demonic reality that underlies the myth of the Minotaur, except um, Virgil's words seem to suggest that this is actually a dude who was killed, right? Who lived in the world and has been... So was there an actual Minotaur in Crete? Or did this... Is this a demon who was in Crete? Um, yeah, Stephen, exactly. <laughs> Stephen says it's kind of uh, Nephilim-ish. Um, uh, okay, uh, Genesis chapter 6. Uh, uh, it is, yeah, it is 6. Genesis chapter 6. The beginning of Genesis chapter 6 is where the flood comes. Uh, and in several highly contested verses that is contested as to what the proper interpretation of them is. Um, we're told at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 6 that at this one point in human history the sons of God looked upon the daughters of man and found them fair uh, and went in upon them as, and there were giants in the land at that, at that time. So this idea and one of the common medieval interpretations of this was that the sons of God in this sense meaning spiritual being meaning demons, right? So that like there was a point when demons were interbreeding with human females and creating gigantic and demonic offspring, which was bad. And this is one of the reasons that God hits the reset button and does the flood, um, which, of course, is what that narrative is immediately leading up to uh, soon thereafter. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly, Shaft. Uh, fall, fallen angels. That's exactly it. Um, so, uh, uh, okay. So... Uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, that's possible. That that's one of the things that he's imagining here. Um, Minotaur is monstrous, right? So, David, I don't know the answer to the question about, um, like, what is he actually? What is what do Virgil's words imply about historical Crete? I don't know the I, I, from 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 Dante's perspective here. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but what I do think is interesting is that right after 
we were talking about that is not just me for a really long digression, but uh, Virgil and Dante, um, uh, uh, while they were like holding their noses at the edge of the seventh circle of hell, um, were talking about the Aristotelian world and the and in particular coming back around at the end through the usury question to the fundamental nature of the human soul. Um, and uh, okay, so. What do we see? The first thing that we... So when we cross the boundary and we start descending down into the abyss, down into the seventh circle, um, where the really serious sinners are, where the sinners against whose sins God's anger is poured out more than against any other sins, the first thing we see is a half-human, half-beast creature, which is the Minotaur, right? And in particular, we see a creature with the body of a human and the head of a beast. And this is important because, wait, why is this important? Um, how, are, um, how are humans and beasts different? Humans and beasts are similar to each other, but there is a very important difference. What's the difference between humans and beasts? Um, the, yes, okay. Um, several of you are saying they have a soul I, I think you're right, but that's not how they would have said it. And the reason that they wouldn't have said it that way, because everything has a soul. These have different kinds of souls, right? Like I, my pen, I said, has a stony soul, right? Um, it, has this, it has a soul, but it's not the same kind of soul that you and I have, right? Um, the pen has, it has a stony soul, right? It has the soul... Um, uh, it, has, it, it has the soul of... of, of it, it has a mineral soul, right? The soul of a rock. Um, a soul that is similar to the souls of rocks. It's not exactly the same, as you can tell, because if you had a rock that's exactly the same size as this, it wouldn't weigh exactly the same, right? Because it's it's not exactly the same. Just like a giraffe isn't exactly the same as you know an aardvark. Um, but they both have they both have their own animal kinds of souls, right? Just as the uh, stony things have their own kinds of souls, and humans have fun. So the question is not. Do they have a soul? Because again, everything has a soul. The question is, what is the difference between the human soul and the souls of animals? And the answer is, yes, creation in God's image. Michael, that's, of course, a really fundamental thing. But honestly, it's, it's like another way of asking that question. Like, what is the image? How, how, how can you tell the image of God when you see it? Right? Like, what does the image of God look like? Um, uh, granted, that that is like the metaphysical explanation for why human souls are different from animal souls, right? Um, that's the effective cause of the difference in their souls. But still, what does it like look like on the ground, right? The difference, and the difference, as several of you are saying, is reason. They uh, what the the kind of soul that humans have that, like my pen does not have, is a, as far as I know, is a rational soul. Right. Uh, exactly. So, OK, so we have uh, so, by the way, we have this. I, we, 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 we have mineral souls, too. Right. Um, jump off something if you don't believe me. Right. Your body wants to go to the wants to go to the uh, to the to the sphere of Earth, just like my pen does. Right. Uh, and if you 
give your body its head, it'll do the thing, right? It'll, it'll pursue happiness, um, uh, at a fairly rapid clip, uh, until you smash into the ground and you would say, well, wait, hang on a second, but that is self-destructive. That's not achieving your true nature, happiness of your true nature. That's destroying your nature. Uh, not to your body, your body's happy, right? It might bring about the sudden separation of your rational soul from your physical body, but your physical body's happy as a clam splattered on the ground, right? Um, because exactly, Jameson, Adam is formed out of clay. So, of course, we've got mineral souls, and we also have the same souls as plants, and we also have this, we have, we're, we're cumulative, right? We can do everything that plants and animals can do. It's just we can do something else too. And that thing is reason. That's what we have, humans, uh, that the animals uh, don't have and the plants and the, and the rocks don't have. Um, okay. So, uh, the, a rational soul and the seat of reason is, is in the brain. Everybody knows that, right? Your seat of reason is in the brain. It's right here in the middle. Um, not up here on the top, like here in the middle. Um, and, um, I'm not like point you can't, like in the center of the brain is where the seat of reason is. Um, and I, I'm not pointing at the right place because I can't point to the center of my head without uh, damage. Um, so, OK. Um, uh, so um, <laughs> David says the plant says, really, try photosynthesis. Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, can we uh, take in sustenance and grow and reproduce? Yeah. We can, we can totally, yeah, we have different mechanisms, right? But I mean, to each his own, right? Again, giraffes and aardvarks, right? Like, uh, yeah, what the, the, the essence of a, of a, of a plant soul, of a vegetable soul, uh, is to grow and to breed, right? That's what plants can do that rocks can't do. Rocks don't grow and they don't breed, right? Plants can grow and breed. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a different power, right? Animals can do that too, but they can do other stuff. Um, we can do other things that the animals can't do, and we, but we can also do those other things. Anyway, okay. So, um, I, boy, what a horrible struggle tonight against, <laughs> not a horrible struggle, I guess, but uh, uh, trying to stay on target is pretty tough. What was I getting to? Head of a bull. That's what I'm getting back to. So, it's not just that the Minotaur is part animal, part beast. That's already conspicuous. That, in a sense, the um, uh, the poster child, as it were, or like the, the first exemplar, that's maybe a better way to say it, of this new spiritual domain that we're crossing into uh, when we when we come to... Um, when, when, when we cross this boundary and enter into the depths here of hell is the Minotaur. Um, he's it's, it's not only fitting in the sense that like we, we have some, someone who is, he, he is not completely human, right? Um, his, he is a monstrosity. He is a warped, his humanity is incomplete. It's he's part human, part beast. And he's not just part beast. It's his head, right? It's the seed of reason itself that is warped into uh, animal form. And that's a bad look. Exactly. Stephen. the part of it that is animal is the very part that, that tends to separate humans. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yes. And David, of course, you're exactly right. Who's the neck. What's the next set of creatures we're going to meet? Centaurs, right? Also part beast, part human, except they're different, right? They have, they've got human heads and, you know, torsos and arms and such. Um, and it's only their lower halves <clears throat> that are, and of course, and they are more rational. 
um, you know, they they have a conversation. Nessus, the teacher of uh, of Achilles, is uh, among them, uh, and uh, Virgil talks to him, um, and Nessus ends up guiding them. Right, we'll come back to Nessus in a little bit. That's a a slightly harder mythology quiz uh, than the Theseus quiz was. We'll get to the Nessus quiz. Um, okay. Um, uh, good. Okay. So, uh, anyway, okay, so, David, this is all, this is a very long-winded way of me not answering your question, essentially, because I said I don't know what it tells us about historical Crete or exactly what he's sort of saying about mythology, but again, he is taking this mythological figure um, at the very... I don't want to say as a symbol, because, again, that's not exactly... It's not the way that the allegory works um, uh, as, like, pure floating symbols. Um, it's it's sort of more than that. And again, if anything, David, I guess that's the one thing that I would say about it, is that um, uh, I would say that... Um, by connecting instead of just seeing the minotaur and seeing him as a kind of abstract um embodiment of the degradation of human nature ultimately which is one of going to be one of the primary themes we're going to see in the lower levels right to if you have gone down if you were sent down to the seventh eighth or ninth circle of hell you have in a deep way abrogated your humanity you know, you have uh, you have pushed your soul. Your soul is, is 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 through your choices. You have brought your soul to the opposite of its home. Basically, you have done violence to your own soul. Everyone is violent against themselves down here to some extent. Right. Um, in some uh, spiritual sense, uh, there is. There is a sense in which nobody down here uh, from the level seven and down is a complete human anymore. Even up above, even the dudes who are gnawing on themselves and each other were more human than these people are human. Um, uh, and so again, so, and, and again, what do we see? First thing we see are minotaur, is uh, the Minotaur and... Uh, and centaurs. And yes, David, exactly as you say, once again, it's all in Boethius. Um, I am so glad, uh, I am so grateful for the wisdom of our um, uh, our Council of the Wise in the Mythgard Academy, uh, the, those uh, 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 of Signum University's donors uh, who nominate and elect the books that we discuss in this series. I'm so grateful to them uh, that the very first medieval work we ever did was Boethius, uh, because, man, that is such a foundational text. Uh, if you... If you can really get Boethius, it will help you with like every single work of medieval literature you ever read uh, for the rest of your life. So um, uh, definitely, definitely recommend that. Um, yeah. Jennifer says, past the gates of Dees, hell seems to get more dangerous. This isn't the last time that Virgil will tell Dante to book it. Uh, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, it's late. Um, right. Run toward the pass. It's better to descend while he's berserk. Uh, exactly. Jennifer, as you're saying, um, 
Dante's in some danger here, right? The 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 um the Minotaur might lash out. Right? You can't you can't tell what that guy's going to do. Um and there you know Dante has uh you know he has a hall pass here to be in hell, but that doesn't mean that he's completely uh that he's completely safe. Um Okay, let's do one more. And I'll try, I'll try, I'll try not to do more medieval metaphysics uh, here. While climbing down, I thought, he said, you wonder perhaps about that fallen mass, watched over by the inhuman rage I have just quenched. So, walls, right? There were steep walls descending down, but there was a crack in it. There was like a landslide in this one spot. And that's where they climbed down was this place where there had been a landslide and so therefore created a scalable uh, or like a climb downable spot. Um, so in this uh, uh, flaw within the walls of the seventh circle is how Virgil and Dante end up descending into the seventh circle. So this is Virgil's explanation of like, who made that convenient stair uh, for them to come down? Um, how did that happen? You wonder perhaps about that fallen mass watched over by the inhuman rage I have just quenched. That is, of course, by the Minotaur. Now, I would have you know, the other time that I descended into lower hell, you know, back when the uh, sketchy necromancer uh, lady uh, sent me down, um, the, the other time I descended into lower hell, this mass of boulders had not yet collapsed. So this wall used to be whole back in Virgil's day, right? Back in the day. Um, uh, this this uh, landslide hadn't happened yet. But if I reason rightly... It was just before the coming of the one who took from Dece the highest circle's splendid spoils, that on all sides the steep and filthy valley had trembled so, I thought the universe felt love, by which, as some believe, the world has often been converted into chaos. And at that moment, here as well as elsewhere, these ancient boulders toppled in this way. This is my, I am going to resist talking about the way in which love leads the world to be converted into chaos face. Um, <laughs> I said I was going to resist a digression into medieval metaphysics, so I'm not going to talk about that right now or else I'll keep you guys up for a really long time. Um, uh, but um, we're not going to do that tonight. Um, but um, what's he talking about? What's the reference? We've talked about it many times before. When when did the landslide happen? And how? When did the landslide happen? At the harrowing of hell. <clears throat> Absolutely. At the harrowing of hell. Um, that is when the one, capital O, uh, who took from Dece the highest circle's splendid spoils. Um, the highest circle, limbo, right? The most, who are the most splendid spoils because they got taken right. Jesus comes down and loots hell, right? He takes out of it its most splendid spoils. Um, uh, just like what? Oh, biblical parallel, Old Testament parallel, allegorical story, just like the Israelites taking the treasure out of Egypt, of course. But anyway, um, so yeah, and those are the those are the saved souls, the patriarchs, like Abraham and uh, and Isaac and Jacob and all the rest of them hanging out there in the upper circle waiting. Uh, and then Jesus, you know, after Jesus's crucifixion, he descends, harrows hell, brings them all back up. So they were all up there in limbo. So it didn't affect anybody down here. Right. Nobody from the seventh circle or the sixth circle or the fifth circle got taken up 
with Jesus, right? He set free everyone who was waiting for Jesus to come take them with him to paradise was up in the first circle. But it apparently affected hell. It affected the entire structure of hell. It's not like there's just a random tectonic shift which creates an earthquake in hell, right? And by the way, of course, um, a uh, uh, an earthquake in hell um, earthquake uh, remember there was an earthquake at the crucifixion? I say remember. For those of you who know the Gospels uh, may remember that at the moment of Jesus' death there's an earthquake. Right? Uh, the New Testament describes an earthquake. That, again, also not merely a tectonic shift. That is a metaphysical earthquake that happens. And that metaphysical earthquake um, like, is resonating throughout the cosmos, right? That is an important moment. And at the moment of the crucifixion, and therefore Jesus, at that moment, Jesus is now coming down and descending into hell and harrowing it, there is a, there is an earthquake um, in, uh, uh, in hell itself. And it affects the landscape. Um, just as both Jennifer and Jameson is remembering the veil is rent in the temple uh, as well, and Carrie as well, absolutely, yes. At that moment, the structure of hell is altered. Now, why this? Why this one, though? I mean, okay, sure. Carrie, exactly as you say, the rending of the veil. So, I, Sorry, uh, and please... If ever you catch me making assumptions, like making assumptions that you're familiar with a particular Bible reference that I'm throwing out, stop me because I don't, I don't, if I'm doing that, I'm doing it accidentally. Um, another thing that the Gospels describe is that the veil, so there was a veil in the Jewish temple, there was a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, right, where only the high priest could go. Um, and that, that was, a, it's a very important veil. Um, and that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Again, this is described, I'm pretty sure in Matthew, um, uh, when Jesus dies, right? So at the moment of Jesus's death on the cross, the veil of the temple is torn and the, I'm going to go with practically universal spiritual interpretation, allegorical interpretation of that moment is that the, you know, sort of the barrier between the sacred place of God, right? The, the barrier between God and people is torn, right? The, uh, the, 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 the sort of the barrier between, uh, between humans and God is torn. Um, but hang on, how does that affect the seventh circle of hell? Nobody down here um, is getting closer to God as a result of the crucifixion. Um, there's, 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 there's nobody who got saved from here, who went to, with Jesus to paradise uh, from this bit, right? Um, uh, what is the effect of that earthquake? What is brought about by that earthquake? There's only one thing that we have any evidence from the text to be able to conclude is the... My apologies. Yeah, my apologies too, Siri. Siri is apparently warning me that I'm really late now and should stop soon. Um, uh, so she was apologizing on my behalf there, I think. Um, yeah, Stephen, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It opens the way for Dante. How is Dante going to get down to the seventh circle of hell? 
It's a steep, a steep cliff, and he's got a body, remember. He's got weight. He's got mass, right? Virgil might have been able to float down. He's just a shade, right? He's not going to plummet. Um, Dante is still subject to gravity. His, his, you know, his mineral soul still is going to do mineral soul things, right? So he can't jump down to the seventh. And there's no ladder. Um, it was the, there's no escalator down into the seventh circle of hell. Um, so um, the effect of the earthquake at the harrowing of hell, the only effect that we see is to open a path for Dante, um, to create a stair for Dante to descend into the seventh circle of hell. So far as we know, that is the consequence of that disruption in the uh, uh, in the structure of hell as a consequence of the harrowing of hell. And, and here I would ask you to remember the connection between Dante's journey and Jesus's journey, the parallels between Dante and Jesus that he has been building from the Monday Thursday thing at the very beginning. Right. Um, the way in which he's inviting us to look in peril. And again, <clears throat> it's easy and I'm often tempted uh, to kind of laugh at that a little bit. And, you know, that is to laugh well at rather than with Dante, if I'm being perfectly honest about his extremely high opinion of himself. Um, but um, but more. Uh, it's not just that. Right. I mean, he is uh, he is. The larger. um allegorical point, of course, that he's making um, in 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 as much as he is being paralleled with the journey of Christ, um, his journey is being paralleled with the journey of Christ. All of our journeys are paralleled with the journeys of Christ. Right. I mean, it's it's um, uh, there is a there is a it's a it's a moral and spiritual allegory as well as uh, uh, a sort of Christological one. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Um, tune in next time where I may or may not talk about the world often being converted into chaos. <laughs> um, and we will certainly talk about, you know, the actual violence and the violent souls, uh, the violence, uh, the violent against uh, each other and themselves. Um, I think I fell short of my goal in progress through the text more profoundly tonight than I have yet, which is saying something. Um, but um, uh, that's okay. No regrets. That was a lot of fun. And I think important. I think important to help to understand some of the things that are coming later. Uh, thank you guys uh, for bearing with me here tonight. Uh, and I look forward to talking again next week, more next week, when we really will get to the woods uh, that are uh, behind me in my picture here. Uh, so thanks very much, everybody. And I will see you guys next time. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.